of Geeks Crossing. You know me. I geek out over a lot of things. I'm a member of this podcast, after all, and geeking out is kind of what we do here. But between my more usual hobbies, interests I've had my whole life, cartoons, video games, animals, history, sometimes an unexpected interest sneaks its way in, something I would have never thought I'd get into, but quickly occupies a place in my mind. For me, theater checks all these boxes. Never in a million years would I have ever thought I'd be a thespian. But a few years ago, I discovered how fun it was being an actor in a few high school and independent plays and musicals. This led to an increased respect for the art form as a whole, and I began to research shows, listen to their tracks, even take some trips to see some stuff in Manhattan. However, just as quickly as this interest appeared in my life, it kind of fizzled out. I'm not really opposed to acting by any means, but I haven't done it as of late. I really don't have any interest in seeing anything on Broadway. Maybe it's because things have been closed for so long. Maybe a show will come along and pique my interest, but it hasn't happened in a long time. I've even fallen out with the music of Broadway shows, which used to be my favorite part of it. I've gotten much more mainstream in the music that I listen to, and nowadays I'll really only turn on a show tune or two when I've got an earworm. I look back fondly on many of the shows I've seen, listened to, or even been in, as I explained on my episode discussing my favorite Broadway musicals late last year. However, looking back, I've also experienced a huge amount of shows that annoyed me, bored me, or did both. And this isn't a case of me taking off rose-colored glasses. I hated a lot of these shows even when I was a huge Broadway buff. So let's not waste any more time. For the first time on this podcast, unless you count the most frustrating Minecraft mob list I did a million years ago, this is my own full-blown worst list. And unlike the Minecraft mob episode where I held nothing personally against those monsters, just how much they could mess me up, I absolutely dislike a large portion of these shows. We're taking a break from my usual top 10 favorites, or top 10 best, and blazing through a top 10 worst. So prepare yourselves. What are the musicals that I find obnoxious, bland, awful to watch, listen to, or both? Which shows have the most annoying and forgettable characters, the worst soundtracks, the worst stories, worst messages? Why don't we find out? Spoilers abound. So be prepared. And theater fans who are listening, I already know I'm going to be pissing a lot of you off in a few minutes, so keep in mind that this is just my opinion, and I hold no ill will towards you if you adore a show that I despise. This is the longest script I've ever written for Geeks Crossing, so it's going to be a deep dive for sure. Let's get right into the woodwork with some honorable mentions. I guess in this case, dishonorable mentions. Starting with The Rocky Horror Show. This musical is a cult classic, popular among alternative musical fans. It follows the adventures of Brad and Janet, a couple who, when their car breaks down, find themselves stranded at a spooky mansion, where a spooky transvestite scientist from outer space, his words, not mine, Dr. Frank Inferter, works to drive them apart and have them given to sexual pleasures with the help of his minions. In case you couldn't tell from this description, this is kind of a nonsense musical in a way of plot and character development. The songs are mostly forgettable. The humor seems to just boil down to two and a half hours of sex jokes. That said, the 50s sci-fi aesthetic is really cool. And a few characters are fun and interesting, like Eddie, the biker zombie who'd previously been kidnapped by Frankenfurter, and Columba, Frankenfurter's reluctant minion, in love with Eddie. And I did say the songs are mostly forgettable. There are still some real bangers. Science fiction double feature picture show, Hot Patootie, Bless My Soul, Eddie's Teddy, and the song's most famous, The Time Warp. 
all in all, this is a musical that's kind of just weird for the sake of being weird, and that kind of turns me off as a result. Another dishonorable mention is Grease, a famous musical about 50s culture and puppy love in an American high school. The preppy new girl Sandy and the wild womanizer Danny Zuko are members of different cliques, Sandy joining the equally preppy pink ladies and Danny, the leader of the greaser gang of dudes. Personally, I find this musical corny in all the worst ways. It's got hit or miss characters, hit or miss songs, and a hit or miss plot. And when you miss about half the time, you get a 50, which is a failing grade. There's a ton of characters, though everything is mostly centered around Sandy and Danny, with Sandy's condescending friend Rizzo and Danny's car-loving buddy Kaniki serving as the biggest side characters. Other members of the Pink Ladies and the Greasers, such as Marty, Frenchie, and Jan for the Pink Ladies, and Duty, Roger, and Sonny and the Greasers, have their own songs describing their lives, despite the fact that they really do not contribute anything, and these mostly forgettable songs just kind of end up wasting your time. I will make an exception for Roger's song Mooning, where he sings about his past as a mooner, literally mooning people, <laughs> just because it's so ridiculous it actually made me chuckle. The message of this show really doesn't save it either. In fact, <laughs> if you think about it, it's pretty awful. The message being, change yourself to make other people like you, uh, which is what both Danny and Sandy do by the end of the show, and that's treated as a happy ending. <laughs> it sounds kind of messed up to me. None of this stuff kills the show. Grease is charming, has some pretty good musical numbers as well. It would be criminal to ignore the iconic classics We Go Together and Grease Lightning. The characters, though often useless and sometimes irritating, are fully fleshed and entertaining enough. So Grease, the definition of a hit-or-miss show, finds its way on my list of dishonorable mentions. One show I have to talk about is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Despite the fact that I saw this show more recently than some of the other musicals on this list, I barely remember it. it. It feels like an absolute fever dream. I remember the ticket winners getting killed on stage during their songs. I remember some hit-or-miss jokes. And I remember a foray of forgettable musical numbers. In fact, I should say I don't remember a single song from this musical. I have a distant memory of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory giving me a foul taste in my mouth. Eh, no pun intended. But since I can't prove this with actual knowledge about the show, a dishonorable mention is the best I can do for what I recall to be a very bizarre rendition of the classic Roald Dahl story. On this list, the dishonorable mentions really aren't in any particular order, so don't consider my final one the closest to making it on the proper list. But with that, we, the last musical before the proper list is Anything Goes. This is one of the oldest Broadway musicals that anyone still cares about. First opening in 1934, the show takes place on the voyage of a passenger ship across the Atlantic. Follows the stowaway Billy, who is in love with a wealthy woman, Hope, who is engaged to marry a rich British dude named Evelyn. And along for the ride are Billy's friends, the nightclub singer Reno and the gangster Moonface. Unlike other kinds of classics, Anything Goes suffers from its age. The show and a lot of its jokes are very dated, and most of the quirky characters and a lot of the quirky humor really fall flat on its face almost 90 years later. Don't get me wrong, it's still got its classic charm. You'll know I'm all about the classics, seeing as I dedicated an entire episode of Renaissance Matt to New York Governor Al Smith, who was still alive when Anything Goes first opened. Maybe he saw it. <laughs> there are some nice moments packed into the show, even a few funny ones. I found the stuffy, aristocratic Evelyn to get the most laughs from me, as opposed to some of the other irritating side characters and the fairly bland and boring main characters. The music is bland. I guess you could technically call this the very first jukebox musical, as it was written entirely with songs by Cole Porter. 
Depending on the version of the show you watch, different songs appear or are taken out. I guess I'd say Blow Gabriel Blow and the actual song Anything Goes are the best, though Let's Misbehave has grown on me. That said, unlike the catchier songs in Grease and the Rocky Horror Show, I don't really think any of the songs in Anything Goes are songs I'd go back and listen to in my free time. And like I said, there's a ton of different versions of this show. Most of my experience with Anything Goes comes from the 1962 revival, the script of which was used by the production I saw. So maybe other versions are better or worse, but from my experience, the show is just mediocre. Not without its charms, not an atrocious viewing experience, but a musical that practically invites me to check my watch constantly. Still, what else would you expect from a musical that premiered during the Roosevelt administration? <laughs> Alright, with those four shows out of the way, we move on to my proper list of the worst Broadway musicals. Starting with number 10, Be More Chill. This probably isn't the first time I've pissed off theater fans in this episode, and it definitely won't be the last. Be More Chill is a musical that was hip with young theater fans especially for a good while. After an off-Broadway performance in 2018 and a short Broadway run in 2019, it has cemented itself as one of the teenage theater fans' favorite shows, alongside Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen, and Heathers, to just name a few. Truth be told, I first listened to the show when I was a teenager, and I actually liked it a lot. The music was catchy and upbeat. The plot was creative. had a good message. Basically, Be More Chill, adapted from the young adult novel by Joe Traggs, follows a geeky loser named Jeremy who wants to be popular in high school. So he inserts an experimental chip into his brain called a squip, which tells him how to, well, be more chill. Hijinks ensue as he abandons his old best friend and way of life and follows the advice of the squip. As you could probably guess, at the end he realizes he's cool just the way he is, and everyone holds hands and sings and, you know, the whole ordeal. Oh yeah, that's a bit of a formulaic ending, but the way the show handles its story is super cool and creative. So, how on earth is Be More Chill even on this list? Well, a few months ago I decided to give the soundtrack to this show, which I hadn't heard in probably three or four years, another listen. To my dismay, it honestly annoyed me. A lot of the songs I used to find catchy and cool are now kind of grating. With this analysis, I watched what I could of Be More Chill online, and my suspicions were confirmed. This show feels like it was written by a teenager. And maybe that's why teenagers like it so much. Some of the songs still hold up, most of A Guy That I've Kind of Be Into, and the finale song, Voices in My Head. Michael in the Bathroom, usually lauded as one of the greatest songs of modern Broadway, is kind of just, eh... Other songs like I Love Play Rehearsal and The Smartphone Hour actually annoy me. I don't know if it's the characters or the lyrics or some combination, but I really don't enjoy most of the soundtrack. Wait a minute, says the diehard Geeks Crossing fan. This kind of sounds like Hamilton. You love the plot and hated the music. Why is Hamilton on your best list and be more chill on your worst list? Wonderful question, random Geeks Crossing listener who kind of sounded like Patrick Starr <laughs> unintentionally. See... Hamilton's story is far more grand than Be More Chill, the founding of the American Republic, and a high schooler wanting to be cool. Plus, even though I don't like the melodies of the Hamilton soundtrack, or lack thereof, the lyrics are typically a cut above the rest, referencing history and early American politics in a very unique and cool way, as opposed to the lyrics of Be More Chill, where they sing about drinking Mountain Dew, masturbating, texting each other emojis, and putting on pants. And finally, there's the characters. The characters of Hamilton are rich and interesting. The characters would be more chill, just aren't. I'll admit, you get some neat Evan Hansen moments from both Jeremy and Michael at times as they try to navigate social anxiety and high school cliques. 
And the Squip himself is a super cool, daunting, and fascinating character. Probably the best in the show. But other than them, who's left? The annoyingly perky love interest. The Valley Girls. The deadbeat dad. The bully. The cool guy. Those aren't interesting, likable characters. They're walking, talking tropes with names. And Jeremy and Michael, though they have their moments, as I said, they really aren't anything to write home about either. Out of all the shows in this list, Be More Chill probably has the coolest concept, which keeps it down at number 10, but its commentary on social anxiety and the desire to be liked is handled much better by Dear Evan Hansen, if only for the fact that Dear Evan Hansen isn't filled with bland and irritating characters and bland and irritating music. Moving forward to number 9, I have Legally Blonde. Now I should explain myself, a musical where the entire aesthetic is the color pink and pop music, with an opening song titled, Oh My God, You Guys, it's not the kind of show that I would normally have any interest in seeing, let alone reviewing, but both my high school and church theater group did separate productions of Legally Blonde, and many of my friends and family members have been in these various productions, so I have had to sit through my fair share of Legally Blonde. And maybe it's just the overexposure, or maybe it's because I am just about as far as possible from this show's target demographic, but boy has Legally Blonde gotten grading for me after such a long time. I don't want to come off like I'm opposed to bouncy pop music or anything, but it's Legally Blonde's bread and butter, and the bread is stale. The plot follows a college graduate, Elle Woods, who gets dumped by her long-term boyfriend, who has his sights on law school and a career instead of a relationship. So Elle goes to Harvard, managing to pass a law exam to get in, just to be with her ex and try and rekindle this relationship. Along the way, she discovers that she'd rather be a lawyer and find strength in herself being a strong, independent woman. Happy ending. Take a bow. Legally Blonde has sort of an identity problem. Uh, you're supposed to root for Elle to overcome adversity, and the show treats her as kind of like a martyr rising against impossible odds. But it's established right at the beginning of the show that she is filthy rich and has two parents that love and support her. So a girl cramming for a law exam and buying her way into Harvard is also sometimes supposed to come off as the definition of an underprivileged nobody, and no one ever points out this discrepancy except for one character, Emmett who actually is poor, and he kind of says, yo, why are we supposed to feel bad for you? But five minutes later, she buys him clothes or something, and it's irrelevant. Okay, okay, but we're not supposed to feel bad for her because she's poor or anything. She's clearly not. But because she's a woman, she's getting taken advantage of. Though this really isn't true in the show either, because in the entirety of Professor Callahan's legal internship, Elle is joined by two other girls and two boys, meaning the girls actually outweigh the guys here, and Callahan really treats those other two girls with respect. I don't know, apparently the show is more about Elle overcoming stereotypes about blondes than stereotypes about women, so I guess I could see that, alright. Plus, the subplot with Elle's hairstylist, actually far more interesting and more, much more enjoyable than the Harvard Law stuff. Elle's stylist, Paulette, feels more like a character from Waitress, a far superior musical that deals with the struggles of a working class woman, and so her scenes are by far the most fun and interesting. But other than this saving grace, there's not really much else. I'll admit I did find the trial of the exercise queen Brooke kind of funny, especially the twist that she belonged to the same sorority as Elle. But other than that, the plot of Legally Blonde is kind of a slog. The characters will occasionally mutter something that garners a laugh out of me, but it's not too often. I, I, I laughed more than I did watching Anything Goes, yeah, but Anything Goes has a lot more charm than Legally Blonde. Plus, I really don't like any of the musical numbers in Legally Blonde. I mean, the opening song is catchy in an earworm sort of way, but other than that, nothing. And of course, the creative decision to add all of Elle's sorority friends as a Greek chorus that never goes away was funny and creative at first, 
but by the 18th scene of the sorority girl saying, like, how's Elle gonna, like, get out of this one? I wanted to rip my hair out. Despite the fact that this plot is okay at times, and I do like the idea that the somewhat ditzy and less traditional lawyer Elle can find things in the case that her peers can't, the forgettable music and uninteresting characters keep this from being a show I'll ever need to watch again. Alright, dragging through one of the most exclusively girly musicals through the mud was not something I thought I'd have on my bucket list, but there it is. It's done. Now let's move on to number 8, Carrie the Musical. If my intuition is correct, then the mob of theater fans that's been on its way to my house to beat me with pitchforks and torches since I started is probably taking a little break right now, because Carrie the Musical is one of the most traditionally disliked Broadway shows out there. The show is one of the most infamous flops in Broadway history, closing after a mere five regular performances. Sure, you have to factor in all the previews, Broadway shows will usually run preview shows, early on, where tickets are slightly cheaper, but the actors and actresses are still ironing out all the kinks. Still, five regular shows. I've known high school productions that got more than five shows. Apparently more than seven million dollars had been poured into Carrie before it was taken off Broadway. More money than any of us will ever see in our lifetime was more or less flushed down the toilet after this legendary flop, making it one of the most expensive flops in theater history, let alone Broadway history. However, it's not fair to say the show totally bombed. The stars received standing ovations during previews, and on opening night, back when standing ovations during bows meant something. Nowadays, people usually stand and clap after any performance of any show. And after Carrie opened, each performance sold out of tickets. That said, even in previews, there were a lot of jeers and boos from the audience, and theater critics and reviewers were not kind. But you know me, I'm not one to give a rat's anus about what critics say. The idea that people get paid to offer their opinion as though it's fact is preposterous to me, and I'd rather rate something for myself. Unfortunately for Carrie the Musical, I have to agree with the critics on this one. Based on the legendary Stephen King horror novel of the same name, Carrie follows a girl with psychic powers who's bullied by her classmates and tormented by her mother, leading up to the point where she destroys her school on prom night. Anything in this show that's kind of cool can mostly be attributed to the source material itself. The characters are rather bland, the most interesting being, unsurprisingly, Carrie herself, possibly her mother. The scene at the prom is admittedly kind of cool. It's usually staged in a very interesting way. As for the music, really, there's nothing to even bother with here. The one song people kind of care about is When There's No One, sung by Carrie's mother, but it's nothing to write home about. Ripping it to carry the musical is quick and painless because a generation of theater critics have already done most of the work for me. The music and characters are completely bland and forgettable. If you like the story of Carrie so much, just go watch the movie or read the book. You'll save your time and your money. Coming in at number seven, I've got Wicked. Cue the angry mob once again. Arguably one of the most iconic Broadway musicals of the 21st century, Wicked is so recognizable and so ingrained in the American public consciousness by this point that even the average person, knowing nothing about theater, has probably heard of it. Yet I've ranked it even below Broadway's biggest flop. I've got some explaining to do. Basically, Wicked acts as the supposed backstory to the Wizard of Oz. It follows Elphaba and Galinda, eventually the Wicked Witch of the West and the Good Witch, from when they meet at boarding school on to the events of the Wizard of Oz and beyond. First, credit where it's due. Some of the twists and turns about the cast of the Wizard of Oz were kind of neat, such as the identity of the wizard himself and the role he plays in the overall story, as well as the transformation of a certain character into the Tin Man. Some of the music is alright, nothing I'd really listen to. There's a lot of pop songs that end up just blending together. Even the interesting relationship between Alphaba and Galinda is kind of cool, and they go from enemies to friends, back and forth. But what really hurts Wicked is its desire to have its cake and eat it too. 
It tries to win over fans of the legendary Wizard of Oz, while also trying to be as different as possible from the Wizard of Oz. If this was done gracefully, it could have been really cool. I'm all for playing around with original material, doing something new with it, but not sloppily like this. Turning the lovable characters of one of the most legendary movies in history into bumbling idiots like Dorothy, vengeful scarred madman like the Tin Man, or sneaky sinister traitors like the Scarecrow. I just feel like it's all such a major turnoff. I think I'd have more respect for this musical if it took place in Oz, even at the same time as The Wizard of Oz, but didn't involve all of the same characters, other than, obviously, the witches and the wizard, whose performances are great. Wicked is also just overstuffed. There's the allegories of racism in the form of the goat professor who gets his rights taken away, but it also kind of doesn't end up fitting into the story much at all. There's just a lot crammed into this musical. Sisterhood, friendship, rivalry, the surveillance state, racism, and 8,000 Wizard of Oz references. I can maybe see people really liking how huge this musical tries to be, but I find it works to the show's disadvantage. Especially when you've got the Wicked Witch secretly surviving at the end, and the Scarecrow secretly helping her out the whole time. It's all just so stupid. I don't think we've reached the musical as I can... Mm, take two. <laughs> I don't think we've reached the musicals that I consider outright horrible yet, but Wicked is definitely teetering. It's got kind of a cool concept, some pretty good characters. Elphaba's sister, Nessa, I personally found to be, like, really great, very underutilized. She's actually, like, really fascinating. The musical wants to focus more on her sister, but whatever. Uh, but a half-baked, overstuffed plot with way too much going on and a ton of loose ends mixed with a mostly forgettable soundtrack guarantees that I was the one feeling green by the end of Wicked. With that, I think we're officially crossing the threshold into musicals I don't think I could sit through again. Starting with number six, Rent. Though a much deeper show than Be More Chill, Rent reminds me of the shows you have to be a teenager to enjoy because it's practically the definition of angst. We'll get to a show that's even worse in this regard later on this list, but Rent seriously tries pretty hard to claim the title of angstiest, most nihilistic musical. I hearken back to past episodes, like actually the best of, of Broadway, where I've discussed my distaste with nihilist philosophy, and I'm suspicious and distrusting of any work of media that tries to get you to believe life sucks, then you die. Granted, this musical deals more with bohemianism than nihilism, but the two are more closely related than one may believe. Nihilism being the classic life sucks, then you die, and bohemianism more or less saying to live your life unconventionally, though I find this dips into hedonism. Wow, okay, I think this is the first time I've ever disliked something on this podcast on philosophical grounds. <laughs> and I also think I got a headache from all that philosophy talk, so sorry about that. I should say, in all fairness, in its last five minutes, Rent backs away from the idea that life sucks and you die, as a character who's about to die suddenly wakes up and says her dead friend appeared to her and said there's more for her to still accomplish in life. Okay, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but honestly, not by much. Rent takes place in New York City in the midst of the AIDS crisis. Aspiring indie filmmaker Mark and aspiring indie songwriter Roger live together in an apartment where they can barely afford rent because they're starving artists. Joining the fun are anarchist professor Tom Collins, drag queen Angel, uptight landlord Benny, performance artist Maureen, and her lawyer Joanne in a gay relationship, and Roger's girlfriend Mimi, who, like Roger himself, is HIV positive. If you couldn't tell from all of those character descriptions, Rent is an extremely serious musical, focusing particularly on the idea of mortality, since half the main cast has HIV or AIDS. Everyone's got different attitudes about life. Roger's desperate to come up with one great song before he dies, while Angel just happily sings about killing his neighbor's dog. No, I'm serious. If it isn't obvious, I'm not a fan. 
I'm not saying the very real struggles of people with HIV aren't moving or important. Of course they are. And honestly, sometimes when this show focuses on those struggles, it's the best parts, and I'll get to that. I just find far too much of Rent to be a sanctimonious romp of starving artists singing about how they're starving artists. A major problem I find in this musical is that very few people actually do anything. Sure, Mark's always filming, Roger's working on his song, but they're just running around singing, dancing in public. Benny the Landlord is treated like this treacherous villain because he expects rent from his tenants, which at the very least isn't written well enough for a show literally called Rent. I get that the characters are struggling, I, I really do, but there's just something about what spending three hours watching bitter, miserable, angsty people say bitter, miserable, angsty things that just does not really serve as a rewarding way to pass the time, in my opinion. Now, again, we're not at the bottom of the barrel yet. There are plenty of nice things I can say about Rent. For one, the set design, usually pretty cool and unique. Some of the more dramatic scenes, like those that take place at the HIV support group, are actually pretty moving. Probably some of my favorite scenes in the show. And a few of the songs aren't terrible. I'm a fan of Christmas Bells in particular. That said, most of the heavy-hitting songs people love from this musical don't do it for me. Seasons of Love is okay, but I'm definitely not going to have it on repeat. One Song Glory's fine. La Vie Boheme is irritating, goes on way too long. All in all, this is one of the most overhyped musicals I can think of, with boring characters, mediocre music, and enough angst to refill an edgy teenager's can of monster energy. You may have noticed I've been sticking largely to more modern musicals. Granted, Carrie and Rent are children of the late 80s and 90s, respectively, but that's still fairly recent as far as musicals go, and the rest of my choices have been from post-2000. Let's change that with my number five pick, Gypsy. Gypsy will always hold a special place in my heart as the first musical I ever knew I hated. I went to see my high school production of it before I bit the bullet and decided to audition for the spring play. The cast and the crew did a great job, of course, and the acting, dancing, singing, and orchestra were absolutely wonderful. show itself, though, couldn't stand it. Is anyone listening to this episode old enough to remember that weird trend when people were unironically watching Dance Moms? You know the archetype, the stern, strict mother who drives her child to her performance limits because she's not so secretly trying to live vicariously through her success. Well, here's a concept for you. How would you like to see that, but stretched into a three-hour musical? At its core, Gypsy follows a woman named Rose, who pushes her talented daughter June to be a performer, while kind of ignoring her other daughter, Louise. June gets pushed too hard and runs off with a guy, leaving Rose to turn her attention to Louise instead. After years of pushing her daughter to be truly great and talented, Rose introduces Louise to the world of striptease. Yeah, she becomes so desperate to see her daughter succeed that she kind of accepts the concept of Louise as a stripper. Eventually, Louise does make it big as a stripper and becomes so successful that she abandons Rose. Along the course of the musical, Rose also strings along some guy-slash-agent Herbie, but he really doesn't impact the story too much. He's just kind of there, constantly telling Rose, yo, what the heck you doing, and getting ignored. With older musicals, I'm talking 60s at the absolute latest, they generally come in two varieties. There are the absolute indisputable classics like West Side Story and Fiddler on the Roof, shows that are timeless and can be enjoyed in pretty much any time period. And then there are shows that are clearly products of their time, with all the quirks and setbacks that come with that label. Anything Goes, which we discussed earlier, definitely falls here, as does How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, a show I have a love-hate relationship with. These kinds of musicals display their age pretty notably, and Gypsy's one of them. Gypsy isn't funny. Okay, maybe it's not supposed to be, but it really isn't entertaining at all, at least in my opinion. It's kind of cool that you feel like you're a consistent member of the audience for June and Louise's various performance, 
But after the cutesy little baby June and her newsboys numbers early on, these musical numbers grow quite stale. In addition to the music, I was also bored with the characters. June and Louise are alright for their roles, and I get that Rose is supposed to be super deep and tragic, but I was mostly just annoyed by her. I get that with the big, broad themes of Gypsy, you're supposed to be annoyed by Rose, and you're supposed to judge her oppressive parenting and presence, but also deep down you feel bad for her as this tragic heroine. But just because something has a point doesn't automatically make it entertaining to sit through. Andy Warhol's 1964 film Empire is supposed to be a movie about watching time go by, perhaps contemplating the fragility of life. But guess what? Empire is actually just an eight-hour shot of the Empire State Building, so I'll never watch it because that's not entertaining. It's funny, and I swear I didn't plan this while writing the script, but the theme of entertaining comes off quite often in Gypsy. The main theme tune for June and Louise is Let Me Entertain You. Well, if only they kept their promise, because Gypsy was not entertaining to me at all. I used to have this musical a lot lower, but in all fairness, it's been a while since I've seen it fully. What, five or six years? So fifth place seems perfectly reasonable for me. Moving forward to number four, I've got All Shook Up. I don't know if I've ever brought this up on the podcast, but I am a huge Elvis Presley nerd. I've listened to pretty much every track he's ever put out. I read his biography front to back. I dressed as him for Halloween one year, and I've got books, mugs, t-shirts, collectible figurines, even a ceremonial plate plastered with the king's smirk. So on paper, a jukebox musical utilizing all Elvis songs and a heavily Elvis-inspired protagonist sounds like a dream come true. How on earth could it have wound up here, on the worst list, and so low at that? Truth is, I've got kind of a chip on my shoulder when it comes to jukebox musicals. Because in theory, I feel like they're a lot easier to make. Because you don't have to get hung up on writing the perfect songs to go with the moments you have in mind for your show. In fact, you can more or less write the show around the songs. This is kind of what Anything Goes did. They had a bunch of Cole Porter songs and they wrote a cute little story around them. Alternatively, you could do what All Shook Up did. And write a bare-bones generic plot about love. And stick random Elvis love songs in different places. I wish I was kidding. I really do. Say what you will about Anything Goes, but All Through the Night is different from Blow Gabriel Blow, and The Heaven Hop is different from Friendship. All these Cole Porter songs, they're different. They make sense where they're placed, alright? In All Shook Up, I feel like you could switch out Can't Help Falling in Love with All Shook Up, or Teddy Bear, or Heartbreak Hotel, or It's Now or Never, or One Night with You, or The Power of My Love, or Fools Fall in Love, or Burning Love. All of the songs I just listed make appearances in this musical, and all of them are used for characters to sing about their feelings of love. Actually, I guess I could call it feelings of lust, not love, since, spoiler warning, most of the objects of affection that these characters sing about don't end up returning their feelings, and much of the story ends up being a waste of time. Speaking of the story, I guess I should get into it. A small town, oppressed by a mean mayor who hates fun, and especially love, is visited by a motorcycling roustabout named Chad. If this sounds like a poor man's footloose, you're onto something. Anyway, Chad decides to mix up the status quo of this sad town by dancing and singing and having fun. Then everyone catches feels for each other and confesses their feelings, or tries to confess their feelings and gets awkwardly interrupted constantly because, yeah, this is a perfectly acceptable replacement for both humor and a coherent plot. As you could guess, the characters in this one-dimensional story end up being one-dimensional. Chad is a cool guy who does cool things. Dennis is a pathetic nerd who secretly loves Natalie. Natalie has the hots for Chad and wants more in the world. Lorraine and Dean love each other and don't even get the benefit of having personalities other than being young and having, who cares what they think, we're in love for every one of their lines. Jim is lonely and Sylvia is also lonely, but delivers sarcastic one-liners. Sandra, the museum curator, is sexy but smart. 
The mayor's mean. The sheriff is mute. Everyone longs for love. Repeat for two hours. If you couldn't tell, I find the characterization some of the laziest that Broadway has ever seen. The one point I will give to it is that some of the characters evolve by the end. But even then, this is kind of weird, done awkwardly. For instance, Natalie decides she doesn't want a man. And Chad decides he loves her but will travel the country with her as her sidekick. These two characters have fairly fitting endings that I find myself happy with. Dennis confesses his feelings for Natalie, where she point-blank rejects him, destroying an entire musical's worth of build-up. Then he and Sandra fall in love with each other, despite the fact that they barely interacted for the whole show, and Dennis was rejected by the love of his life ten seconds earlier, but hey, they're both nerdy, so they can spontaneously fall in love. And the mayor is literally about to ban all love in the town when the sheriff confesses his love for her, and then she's just immediately cool. You know, she's immediately fine with throwing her entire personality aside and becoming totally tolerant of everything. I get it. Trust me, I get it. The musical really, really, really wants the audience to take away the message that love conquers all and there's a lid for every pod and whatnot. But love does not conquer having a good story or good characters or good music. I guess I should get to the music briefly. Despite the hell I gave it earlier, this is Elvis music, so it's pretty solid. Of course, I'd rather just, you know, listen to Elvis sing them, but All Shook Up does some kind of creative stuff. Specifically, the big act one finale, where everyone sings Can't Help Falling in Love. Admittedly, that looks and sounds pretty nice. And the power of my love dynamic between Chad, Jim, and Sandra is a really funny scene. I should also note that, apparently, the wild, confused plot of All Shook Up is inspired by some of Shakespeare's major works. I'm serious. So maybe I'm just not intellectual enough to understand why 18 unrelated love songs in a row isn't entertaining. There's really nothing else to write home about for All Shook Up. If you're an Elvis fan like me... Just listen to Elvis sing his songs. Trust me on this one. We're nearing the end of this wild ride as we come to number three, Heather's the Musical. Okay, I know I'm kind of on thin ice here seeing as Heather's has never actually had a Broadway run, and this is talking about Broadway musicals, but in all fairness, there's way more to musicals than exclusively shows that have premiered on a random Manhattan theater and gotten sponsored by Playbill. And besides, Heather's is one of the most popular musicals among theater-loving young adults, so I think it's popular enough where I can talk about it. Plus, the show did have a run on West End, which is Britain's Broadway, with another run on the way. Oh, it's fair game. Remember earlier how I mentioned that Be More Chill was a show that seemed like it was written by teenagers for teenagers? Well, Heather's is the exact same way. In fact, it's probably worse. Heather's the musical, based off the cult classic 80s film Heather's, follows the exploits of a girl named Veronica, who attends a school where three popular girls, all named Heather, are practically worshipped. Veronica is invited to join this clicky trio in a scene not unfamiliar to fans of Mean Girls, which coincidentally also became a musical, which did make it to Broadway, but Veronica realizes she's becoming a jerk as well, so she teams up with JD, a sort of rebellious loner, to stop the Heather's reign of terror. JD himself is then revealed to be a psychopath, actually killing classmates who he believes are getting in their way, so Veronica has to find a way to stop him. Now I should say, up front, I've never seen the movie Heather's, only several productions of this musical. This is a surprisingly popular choice among teens and young adults looking to put on performances. But I will admit that the musical is an interesting concept, in theory, taking this rosy bubblegum pop high school scenario and trying to make it all super dark. I do like how you go in thinking it's all going to be about the Heathers and then you leave after a totally different experience. Of course, this is number three on my least favorite Broadway musicals of all time, so clearly just having an interesting premise is not enough to save Heathers. The characters are a mixed bag. Veronica's okay, if a bit poorly written at times. I'll get to my problems with the writing in a minute. The Heathers are alright. They're kind of like less funny versions of the three girls from Mean Girls, but then this really isn't supposed to be a funny musical. 
except when it awkwardly tries to be. JD's a psychopath, not really a well-written character either, but I guess he really doesn't have to be since he's supposed to be deranged. Then you have the two jocks, goofy but forgettable, and Veronica's uncool friend Martha, who exists just for the bullying subplot. The story's where things really fall apart, because like I said, this is another musical that feels like it was written by teenagers. You've got this whole terrifying situation going on, high schoolers are getting murdered left and right, and ne'er a parent gets involved, let alone a police officer. If this musical was supposed to exist in the absence of all adults, I can understand it. But there's scenes where the adults actually do step in, and the teenage main characters treat them like they're a bunch of out-of-touch losers. You got Miss Fleming, the teacher, who apparently actually cares about helping the students through this mentally stimulating time, until Veronica blows up at her, claiming she's only interested in appearances, an accusation Fleming neither confirms nor refutes, and she fades from relevance right after. But the students' relationship with their parents is arguably the worst written part of the show. This is what puts Be More Chill leagues above Heathers for me. Yeah, the teens in that show characterize their parents as useless, but the parents are actively portrayed as such, with Jeremy's father being a total deadbeat until he realizes he should get involved in his son's stressful teenage life. Heathers, though, tries to have its angsty cake and eat it too. I'll accept that JD's dad is kind of an oddball who pays little attention to his son's nature, and he's portrayed as such, but when Veronica tries to commit suicide, twice, and her parents freak out and want to know what's going on, she proceeds to attack them with a you don't understand monologue. And she must have been right, or shamed them into submission, because in the final most dramatic act of the show, they're nowhere to be found. Oh, and I guess the football players have those two dads that sing a lighthearted song after they find out their sons are brutally murdered. Honestly kind of forgettable, very weird. Basically, the adults in the show are written as afterthoughts, with most of the attention going to the two-and-a-half-hour romp of Veronica and axe murderer J.D., who weirdly gets painted as kind of a hero or an anti-hero during the end when he sacrifices himself to blow up a bomb that he himself planted in a high school. I get it. It's a travesty when children are radicalized like this. And I'm not saying anyone in the cast should be throwing a big party after J.D.'s death, but I'm a bit less inclined to appreciate that J.D. blew himself up when it was with a bomb that he himself created and prepared to set up in a freaking high school. Mediocre characters, messy story, and as you can imagine, we get a forgettable soundtrack too. A weird problem that Heathers has is a lot of its songs are very weirdly placed. I remember the last 20 minutes contain at least three songs back to back where characters sing about their depressing lives. Even back before I got into theater, I remember finding that very strange. As for the songs themselves, eh... I warmed up a bit to Meant to Be Yours, the unhinged JD uh, love song. And when I first saw the show, I took a liking to Beautiful and Candy Store, and even the dopey Heather's lifeboat, during which she sings about how stressed and scared she is about the terrifying events at the school. However, I'll admit I really don't care about any of these songs anymore. In fact, we have officially crossed the music threshold. After these few decent Heather songs, there will no longer be a single song remaining on this entire list that I care about or enjoy in any meaningful way. What else can I say about Heathers? Well, at the very least, I can understand why it's such a popular show among teenagers, because it seems to be written in a way that teenagers would be the only possible audience to enjoy it. Alright, bottom of the barrel, number two, I have The Prom. The Prom follows a small town in Indiana, where a gay couple wants to attend their high school prom, and the socially conservative parents are up in arms. A group of Broadway has-beens decides that, to be popular and generate headlines, they will swoop into this town, which they view as backward, and help save the day. Now, I'm not here to get into the social issues addressed in this musical. No way, no how. That's for you to all think about and me not to discuss in this podcast. What puts the show below the likes of Wicked, Gypsy, even Heathers? Well, here's the thing. Every other show on this list, for the most part, 
is interested and invested in its characters. Legally Blonde is a wonderful character study for Elle Woods, if that's what you're after. Wicked dives into the clashing personalities of Lafaba and Galinda, while Gypsy pretty much only exists as a character study for Rose. Hell, even Heathers follows the exploits of Veronica, trying to be popular, then trying to be herself, then just trying to fix all of her mistakes, with an admittedly interesting arc. So imagine my surprise when I saw The Prom, a musical that seems to take strides in underdeveloping almost its entire cast. The main characters are the gay teenager Emma, who likes to play guitar, and of course you've got the Broadway has-beens. Labeled narcissists by theater critics, they want to take up this social justice cause as a way to look relatable. Clearly just in it for themselves, you may believe. These actors and actresses consist of Angie, Trent, Barry, and the head honcho Dee Dee. You also have some side characters, like Alyssa, the girl Emma wants to take to prom, Mrs. Green, Alyssa's mom, who doesn't approve, and Mr. Hawkins, the school principal, who accepts Emma and is a fan of Dee Dee's work. We'll get to that dynamic in a minute. You didn't know this, but I've already summed up Emma's entire personality. For the girl who the whole show's supposed to revolve around, all that the prom decides is worthwhile about her personality is that she's gay and she sometimes plays the guitar. That is literally all she gets. Mrs. Green is a PTA mom and a fairly uninteresting token villain, who the prom has no interest in exploring until her very last line of dialogue. Alyssa, too, is rather uninteresting, a bland love interest who doesn't like how much drama and publicity the prom interest is generating. But what I really want to talk about are the Broadway has-beens. Narcissistic, self-absorbed, and unaware that nobody really thinks they're all that great. Swooping into a small town to play hero, thinking they're better than everyone they're talking to. With that description in mind, you probably have an idea of what should happen to them. They would slowly come to realize the world doesn't revolve around them and step off their high horses. Maybe they even find parts of the small town life are appealing and there's more to the world than everything they know and believe. Right? That's what I thought was going to happen. And that might have made for a pretty fun story. As it turns out, though, barely a few minutes after these Broadway stars arrive at the small town, most of them immediately become entirely selfless and noble-hearted. And the plot point about them just being in it for themselves completely disappears for all of them except for Dee Dee. Dee Dee, as a result, gets the most interesting story arc, having to learn that the world doesn't revolve around her, and there's more to life than just her image and publicity. Her actor friends, Barry, Trent, and Angie, learn this immediately after arriving in the small town, and are treated as lovable, superior people who are correct about everything they say and do. The most eye-rolling segments of this regard come in the form of songs like Zazz and Love Thy Neighbor, where the Broadway has-beens reveal that they've always been right about everything. Dee Dee is the only main character whose beliefs are ever challenged. And even then, she's paired with Mr. Hawkins, who spends the entire first act gushing about how he's such a huge fan of her work. That would usually lead me into the music, but there's nothing to talk about. It's all forgettable schlop. So to bring it home, the prom takes an interesting concept and sees to it that nothing comes of it. The Broadway has-beens, who are supposed to be facing a reckoning, are treated as being entirely correct about every one of their views from day one, with the sole exception of Dee Dee, who gets some actually semi-coherent development. Emma, the gay girl who sometimes plays guitar, and ostensibly one of the main characters, is barely explored. Mix all that horrible plot with a garbage soundtrack, and you get the prom. Whew, nine musicals ranging from mediocre to outright terrible, have come and gone. Be More Chill, Legally Blonde, Carrie, Wicked, Rent, Gypsy, All Shook Up, Heathers, and The Prom. I, what could be worse than a musical with undeveloped characters, a generic story, and a bland, forgettable soundtrack? How about a musical with unlikable characters, a stupid story, and a bland, forgettable soundtrack? 
Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, my number one pick for the worst Broadway musical is Spring Awakening. Spring Awakening follows the adventures of some German school children in the 1890s. Basically, they're all going through puberty and developing sexual urges and catching feels for one another. And the whole show is them grappling with this, engaging in dozens of passionate moments with one another. Holy crap, I just realized this is Big Mouth the Musical. Oh. <laughs> Jokes aside, I hinted to Spring Awakening when I discussed the edginess of Rent. I mentioned there was a far worse offender in the category of musicals that try to be edgy as possible. And nobody beats Spring Awakening in that category. The school children are taught that premarital sex is bad, but Melchior, I think it's pronounced, who would be described as an edgelord, if this show took place 115 years later, flips off the man and convinces the cast of the show to engage in sexual acts for two hours. The whole show's premise sounds like it would be thought up on a drunken dare. Hey, it would be funny if you wrote a show where German school children have sex in a barn. But no, Spring Awakening isn't the product of some theater major trying to create the next rent. Well, maybe the musical was, but the premise itself came from a German play of the same name, which was written in the 1890s. The characters are either painfully boring or painfully obnoxious. I bring you back to Melchior, the Melchior, whatever, Melch, we'll call him Melch, the generic bad boy who thinks he's too cool for school and that you should have as much sex as possible to stick it to the man. There's also Wendla, the innocent and pure-hearted girl who ends up getting it on with Melchy. And Moritz, the awkward and intensely nervous student who gets ridiculed by his teachers and parents. There are other characters, but really no one of note. The school children are all either shagging or express interest in shagging, while the adults are portrayed as strict, impatient, no-nonsense, abusive, over-the-top villains. As for the music of Spring Awakening, well, I bring you back to the music of The Prom. Not a single song is interesting. I just realized, actually, Spring Awakening is kind of an amalgamation of the problems I had with some of the other shows in this list. The adults are portrayed as generic, useless, oppressive, big fat meanies, like in Be More Chill and Heathers. The show attempts to be as edgy as possible, like Rent. It attempts to dive into an unlikable protagonist, like Gypsy. And everything gets triggered by a rebel who attempts to stick it to the man, which results in everyone getting horny, like in All Shook Up. And like All Shook Up, Spring Awakening is seemingly under the belief that characters running around with hearts in their eyes is a perfectly acceptable replacement to a functioning story. It is sadly mistaken. All in all, Spring Awakening is a dumpster fire, a musical that's intensely unappealing both audibly and visually, and a show that takes the crown as the worst musical I've ever experienced. And I would definitely wash that crown if Spring Awakening ever returned it. This was a very different list to make, as I try to be as optimistic and lighthearted as possible when I'm discussing things on this podcast, like my favorite shows or characters from certain works of media. Still, since 2017... I've had an axe to grind with many of the musicals in this list, and I'm happy I've finally gotten to air those grievances. If you're a fan of any of these musicals, just know that we really don't get to shows I passionately dislike until around number seven, so Legally Blonde and Be More Chill fans can go home. Okay, seriously though, everyone's entitled to their opinions. The Prom, Heathers, Wicked, Rent, Spring Awakening, these are all beloved shows with dedicated followings. I'm sure there were shows among my favorites that some theater fans disliked, and that's okay, because different opinions are what makes the world go round. You just listened to another Geeks Crossing podcast. Have you ever seen a musical? What are your favorites and least favorites if you have? Please let us know on our Discord. Link is in the description of this episode, as always. Follow us on Instagram at Geeks Crossing and continue to support us wherever you're listening to us right now, whether that be on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, or iHeartRadio. My name is Matt, and this has been... Oh, God. Uh, the hardcore theater fans have found me. 
that's going to be it for me on this one. I have to go barricade my doors and windows. See ya.